Amen. Amen. We're going to Acts, the second chapter. Acts 2 and 42 and Acts 10 and 44. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. The scene is that Peter is in Cornelius' house, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a man who has at the instruction of the Lord sent for Peter that he would come and tell him what he needed to know. So it tells us very clearly from Acts 10 that just to know the Lord and to, to have faith and to love God is not enough. It's a great start, but Cornelius had all those things. But the Lord, in response to Cornelius's faith, said you need to send a jopper for a man named Peter. Peter came down. Peter did what Peter normally did. He began to preach about Jesus Christ and how he died and rose again and while he was preaching verse 44 says while Peter yet spake these words the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word and they of the circumcision or the Jews which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost how did they know that verse 46 for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and they prayed. Then prayed they him. It doesn't say they prayed to him. They prayed him. They they asked him. They they requested of him that he would tarry certain days. Something had happened in that house that they'd never experienced before and they wanted this Jewish preacher to tell them a little bit more about what was going on. And so they asked Peter to stay. Bless the Lord. We are in our third lesson this morning on our series on apostolic identity. Apostolic identity. We have discussed already that a true apostolic identity must demonstrate a connection with the apostles. We are 2,000 years removed in time from what is often called the apostolic age. But if we are going to continue to claim to be apostolic, there must, it is not negotiable, There must be factors that we have in common with the apostles. And those factors must be significant enough to affirm the claims that we make. In our first lesson, we identified three areas that we must consider if we are going to test the authenticity of our apostolic identity. Firstly, we must have apostolic doctrine. We must have the beliefs and the teachings of the apostles. Secondly, we must have apostolic experience And thirdly, we must have apostolic lifestyle. Last week, last Sunday morning in our second lesson, I was quite long. I'm hoping not to be quite that long today. But uh, we considered what apostolic doctrine really is. We established very clearly from the Scripture about who the apostles believed that Jesus was, that He was God manifest in the flesh, that He was God Himself revealed to us to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer. We understood that the apostles believed that to be born again or to be saved, that you must be born of water and spirit. And you must repent, you must be baptized in Jesus' name, and you must be filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking other tongues as we just read in Acts chapter 10. We also established that the apostles taught and believed 
that the Holy Ghost must be active in us when after we are born again, changing us, renewing us, transforming us, producing fruit in our lives, and that the gifts of the Spirit should be in operation in the church and among the church. We, we established that the apostles believed and practiced sacrificial giving, and that that is still a part of the apostolic church today. And we ended with the fact, the very important fact, that the apostles believed and practiced prayer and how powerful that prayer is and how I'm still feeling very much a stirring from the Spirit of God that we really need to be a people of prayer. Amen. We talked about how doctrine is crucially important. Now, some people don't like it, but it is crucially important in defining what we believe and being the foundation upon which our church is built. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in 2 and 20 of Ephesians and he said that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We established that good doctrine is necessary in many, many areas of our lives. When you get in an airplane, you want to hope that pilot's got good doctrine. When he looks at all those gauges and whiz-bang dials and levers and gadgets, you want to know that he knows his doctrine. Because if he doesn't know his doctrine, your travel insurance is not going to cover what's about to happen. There was a tragic story in the news during the week of a plane that crashed. I can't remember where it was, somewhere in the world. And it said that the, the, the last recorded words they heard of the pilot was something along the lines of he'd pushed or pulled something the wrong way. He made a doctrinal error. Now, human error is a part of life, but when you fly in a plane full of people, you want to know that your training and your doctrine is solid. How much more so when we make decisions that affect our eternity? How much more so when the things we teach and preach are the foundation of our salvation and our relationship with Jesus Christ, that this is just a warm-up for the eternal finale? We need to have it right. Amen. So our doctrine identifies our house, so to speak, or, or who we are. But our experience describes what's going on inside the house. And today we want to talk about apostolic experience, what it means to have apostolic experience. Amen. Bless the Lord. In just over a week, I will be visiting my parents. My parents have lived in the same house that they are in now since I was born, which is coming around to 44 years. When I go to that house, I will be reminded of many, many memories that are associated with that house. I lived there for the first 23 and a half years of my life from my infancy right up to and including the first 18 months of my marriage. I lived in that house. And so there are many memories that will be stirred when I go there. And I will, there's, there's a lot of things I could tell you about, but in the backyard of my parents' house, there's a big swing that my parents bought when we were small children that was second, third, or fourth hand when we got it. And it's this big metal frame, and I remember my little sister and her best friend who escaped parental supervision and decided to paint that swing. Got a can of house paint out of the shed and dipped their, plunged their hands into the paint and went up and down the poles to paint the swing, but they weren't very tall, so the color only went so far up the swing. There are very many funny stories. I could tell you, I could take you today 
to the garage at my parents' house where my father has built cupboards in, that are recessed into the wall where he keeps his tools and all those things that men have. And there are three large doors, and I could take you to the first door. I was thinking about it this morning. And if you look carefully, there's a faint outline around about the size of my fist where after a disagreement with his mother and a petulant adolescent put his fist through the door and then had to live in fear for several hours before his father came home from work. There are a lot of memories in that house. A lot of memories. All you young fellows are chuckling. That's because you've all done similar things. But there's a lot of memories in that house. But we understand that the house itself is a structure of concrete, timber, steel possibly, a bit of glass thrown in. And the memories that took place, they're not the house itself, but they took place within the house. And so the two are inseparable. When I remember those things, I remember them in the house and around the house. The house is not the memories, but it is the structure of the memories. It is the place where the memories are located in my mind. And uh, I go back there and they all come back. And no doubt while my son is with me, the stories will come out again. Some of them he's already heard multiple times and he'll hear them again. Because that's what families do. That's what pastors do. Some of you have heard me tell the same stories again. You'll hear them again, I promise. I know so many of Brother Glass's stories, I could just about write his life story. So I heard them for so many years and I'd love to be able to hear them again today. But in the same sort of way, our doctrine should be inseparable from our experience. Our doctrine is the foundation. It is that upon which we build and the things that happen to us and in our relationship with God are a part of that. They have to have a spiritual foundation. There cannot be a separation from those things. Experience, according to the Oxford Dictionary, means something that is practical or something that is actually being done or is being used that has practical contact with or the observation of facts or events. In other words, it's more than just theory. It's reality. It's happening. You didn't just read about it or hear somebody tell you about it, but you have participated in it yourself. It's why in Saturday morning's West Australian, when you read the positions vacant, when you're looking for a job, you'll often see employers asking for somebody with experience because they, they recognize the value of training and of knowledge, but they also hope that you've had some experience because they know that when you take training and you put it with experience, you become more effective at what you do. You can read every book there is on surgery, go to every medical school and every university, but until you take that scalpel in your hand, for the first time. I wonder if they tell patients when it's the surgeon's first time. We want you to know, Mr. Butcher, that the doctor that will be operating on you today has never actually performed surgery. I don't think they tell us that. And I think there's a reason. But there's a place for experience in every field. If all we ever have is knowledge and, and instruction and it never becomes active, then it, it doesn't reach its potential. It's not fulfilled. And just as I talked about the memories in my own house, this house has memories in it. You have memories in this place. I have memories in this place. Some of you were baptized in Jesus' name here. 
Some of you were filled, filled with the Holy Ghost at this altar. Some of you brought your babies to the front of this church to be dedicated to the Lord. Some of you even stood at the front here and got married. Made all kinds of wild promises. But we have memories that are associated with this place. Some of us have been prayed for here, received healing miraculously from the Lord. Who's ever been healed in their body by the Lord through prayer? Look at all those hands. Don't tell me God doesn't still do miracles. Don't tell me the apostolic experience is finished. God still does it. Amen. Bless the Lord. And these are your memories of your apostolic experience, but they need to keep happening. If we're going to continue to claim to be apostolic, then people need to keep being baptized in Jesus' name. And I'm glad to be able to say that this morning with a full baptistry because we're going to baptize the young man in Jesus' name at the end of this service. People need to keep receiving the Holy Ghost. They need to keep being healed. They need to keep dedicating their children. They need to keep seeing the miraculous. If we are going to continue to make those claims then it needs to continue to happen. And all the things we look back at in our testimonies need to be launch pads for what's about to happen in our future. Amen. We know it's not about the physical structure of this place. These are just big, cold, concrete slabs, particularly at this time of year. Come back in February, there'll be hot concrete slabs. But there's nothing special about this concrete. But what makes this physical structure special is what it's put aside for. It's put aside for the worship of God and for the preaching of the Word of God. And, but if we are going to continue to come here and continue to claim to be an apostolic church, then apostolic things must still happen here and still happen in the lives of people. Amen. I could take you to places that were apostolic, even in this town that we're apostolic, but for one reason or another are no longer. And if you and I say that we are apostolic and yet when we gather together these things don't happen, we've become a museum. We've become a place where people go to talk about the past. And when we open this book, we are talking about the past. But the reason we talk about it is because we believe it's still relevant in the present. We believe that what we read happened then still happens now. We're not a museum. I could take you to town, in Townsville to the church, to the building where I received the Holy Ghost. I could probably take you fairly close to the exact spot where I was sitting when the Spirit of the Lord and that promise that the Bible says is for you and to your children, when it first became mine, I could take you to that place with my mother's arms wrapped around me from behind and an evangelist's hand on my forehead and praying in my face and God filled me with the Holy Ghost for the first time. I could take you there to places where at the altar I felt the hand of God call me to serve Him. But you know, if we went there today, Brother Gavin could tell you it's not a church anymore. Uh, that's not a sad story. The church didn't close. They just relocated to a new building. I don't know what it is now. Last time I think I was there, it was an accountant or something like that. So if I walked in that place, there's desks and reception and offices and posters on the wall about doing your tax and whatever else that might be there. It's not what it used to be because the structure is now serving another purpose. We have to be careful that the structure of the church doesn't change its purpose. 
that the frame that we have and the foundation that we have is used for something else. And tragically, many churches have paid that price through history. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So what were or what are some of the significant factors of the apostles' experience in the Word of God? The first one that I've listed is that they preached the gospel wherever they were and wherever they went. Didn't matter what the situation was. They preached in the cities. They preached in the country. They preached and witnessed when they were in prison. They preached in the synagogues. They preached in courtrooms. Preached in the marketplace. And they even preached in a chariot on a desert highway. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. It was a part of them that could not be separated from who they were. It was a part of their identity. I'm challenging you this morning. It was a part of their identity. Everywhere they went, they shared this new message. Because back then, it was still new. They shared the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some tradition says, and I have no way to prove it, it's only tradition. But some tradition says that when Paul was in prison in Rome, that they had to rotate his guards because he would preach to them. And the gospel was starting to affect the man that was supposed to be keeping him in prison. Now that might just be a nice story, but it's, when you read about what the Apostle Paul was like, it's not hard to believe that it might have been true. Because some of the most anointed, well it's all the same, but some of the anointed word of God that we have was penned in a prison cell. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost while idolatrous Romans stood at the doorway. And they would have heard him pray. They would have heard him speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God flowed through him. It didn't matter where he was. He didn't have to have a pulpit. He didn't have to have a title. He just had a gospel. And wherever they went, they taught it. They preached it. They believed in the power of the gospel. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe in the power of the gospel. And they believed in the necessity for everyone to hear it. That was part of their experience. As a result of that, people were born again as a result of their witness. In Israel, you read the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, thousands were added to the church. It wasn't the only time that there were multitudes that were added to the church. And when persecution came and some of the church were scattered, they went to Samaria and there were people that were born again that turned to the Lord. And from there they went up to Antioch and Ephesus and Philippi and all of those places that you've got pictures of in your little maps in the back of your Bible. And everywhere they went, they preached, people heard it and they responded. Oh, but it was different then. You're right. In many ways it was harder than it is now. They went into such wicked and ungodly cultures. They preached about a man who came with a message of love who died upon a cross for their sins. And people responded. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, they were described not in a complimentary fashion. We, we read it as complimentary, but it wasn't a compliment when they said it. They described them as being those that had turned the world upside down. They didn't say that saying how good they were. They were angry at them. But they were making a difference. Bless the Lord. The apostles saw the miraculous take place. We just how many hands did we just see go up saying they've been healed? That was a part of the apostolic experience. Now sometimes we think because we pray for somebody and they don't get healed that we're failing. Do you think the apostles healed everybody? Not even Jesus healed everybody. 
There were places where because of the lack of faith, Jesus was unable to do many miracles and he was God manifest in the flesh. And so when we think, well, they weren't healed, so we failed somehow. No, no, we leave that in God's hands. The apostolic experience is that you pray in faith, in Jesus' name, believing, and you leave the results to Jesus. And they did that. They saw people healed. They saw demon spirits cast out of people. And it didn't always have the effect that we'd like it to have. Sometimes it got them in trouble. They saw the dead raised. They saw prayer go up in a church and people delivered from prison. Not in the courtroom where the judge changed their mind, but where an angel went in. You imagine the news today. Man is found that was in prison. How'd you get out? An angel came. You'd be going back to prison, but you'd be going to the psychiatric ward. You imagine telling the magistrate, an angel came and opened the door. Mmm, lock this one up. But that's what happened. They prayed and God caused angelic beings to bring deliverance. It still happens. Bless the Lord. You know, we, one of the reasons we don't recognize these things is God does them in an ordinary fashion, not in the sensational that we look for. The Bible talks about entertaining angels unawares, which means that when we interact with them, they don't have wings. They don't glow in the dark. They're often presented as ordinary people. Now, I believe there are times that the Lord, that people do see angels from the Lord, and they know without a doubt that they were angels. There are those heavenly experiences, but there are also times when we are unaware of who, who and what they are. And God still does those things today. Bless the Lord. Part of the apostolic experience was that they had great unity. Acts 2 and 46 says, And they, continuing daily in the temple with one accord. No matter how you translate that, it means they had one purpose. They were in agreement. What they were doing for the kingdom of God was bigger and more important than anything else in their lives. That's what it means. One accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Bless Lord, that's part of the apostolic experience. That's something we have to work at. That's something we have to strive for because it's not natural. Unity in the Spirit only comes by the Spirit. It never comes just... They're, they're, our mind and our will is involved. But you've got to take that mind and take that will and submit it to the Spirit of God. You've got to choose what matters more. Bless the Lord. So the apostolic experience that we read about in the book of Acts and on into the epistles was an exciting and a powerful time. There was the demonstration of God's power. The church was growing. There were miracles happening. There was all the things that we love to read and preach about. But just in case you thought it was all blessings and love and the power of the Holy Ghost, there's more to the apostolic experience than that. They also faced persecution. One of their senior leaders in Jerusalem had his head cut off. It'd be like the state government taking Brother Downs or one of our national leaders and executing them. Many believers were dragged out of their houses and thrown into prison by Saul of Tarsus before he became an apostle. We forget that that happened to the church. We read about Paul. We think he's a great guy, but he wasn't always a great guy. 
the religious authorities worked very hard against the church in its infancy trying to destroy it. Some of them were stoned to death. Stephen, just a young man, just wanting to serve, just love the Lord, freshly born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, wanting to do whatever he can. Can I clean the toilets, Pastor? Yes. Can I clean the church? He was doing anything he could. God anointed him, did miracles through him, and we would love the story to stop there. But because of his desire for the things of God, it got him an opportunity to preach to the very important people. And he preached the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament. And at the end of that, they raised an offering for him, put him in a nice hotel and took him out for steak. No, that's not what it says. It says that they stoned that young man to death. That they were so angry with him. It says they gnashed their teeth and they ran. And they stoned him to death. And Saul of Tarsus stood there holding their coats. This is part of the apostolic experience. Not so many amens with this part. That's okay. The culture of their day did not welcome them with open arms. The places they went and preached, they were not very enthusiastic about this new faith that had come to town. John 16 and 33, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. Now, not everybody gets to go through all the things that the apostles went through. And to be honest, I don't feel that I'm missing out on anything by not being shipwrecked or beaten or stoned. If it comes to that point in this world that happens again, God give us the faith to go through it. But we will suffer different forms of tribulation. You know why we don't suffer a lot of that stuff today? A lot of us couldn't handle it. I don't think I could. I'm being honest. Some of the things the apostles went through, that's some pretty hard stuff. But this was all part of the apostolic experience. And these are the things that happened outside the church. Let's talk about what was going on inside the church. We need, we need a lot of black pens to hide some of this stuff in that New Testament. The devil was doing everything that he could to get in and among the believers and to break it down from within. And you know, the stuff that Christians sometimes have to deal with from without, that really in the big picture is not too bad. It's when the storm gets in the ship. You get to Acts chapter 5 and part of the apostolic experience is Pastor Peter telling Ananias that Satan has filled his heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. And Ananias drops dead right there at the front of the church. Now it does not tell us if there were any other people there, but I believe there were. Why? Because Ananias' motives was to look good in the sight of others. And when he brought that money and gave it to Peter, he didn't want it done discreetly. He wanted everybody to know how awesome he was. And I promise you there was a crowd. I don't know if it was at the end of a service or they were gathering together to pray or what it was. But when Ananias dropped dead, it wasn't just him and Peter standing there. There was at least some young men because they carried his body out. Maybe it was a youth service. Better behave in youth service, young people. Bless the Lord. But this is happening in the new apostolic church because the devil was using Ananias and Sapphira to try 
to disrupt, to distract, and to discourage the great things that were happening in the apostolic church. I'm not going to give you all the examples, but there were disputes over doctrine in the early church. You go to Acts chapter 15, there's a big old debate going on about whether or not the Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses, and they did or they didn't. What did they have to do? There's, just, there's a lot of contention going on. And they get together and they have a meeting, and finally they come to a decision, and James stands up and he says, it seems good unto us and to the Holy Ghost, and he tells them, this is what we've decided is going to be the answer. You know, and we read that sometimes, and we think that when James got up and said that, everybody went, that's wonderful. And they all went back to loving each other and there were no problems. I promise you, not everybody agreed with James. I've been in church long enough to know that there were some people that thought it was the wrong decision. And that James had lost the plot and the elders were taking the church off the tracks. And there would have been people that left. It's not recorded, but human nature in the first century is the same as human nature in 2015. There were people that left the church over that, I promise you. If I'm wrong, the Lord forgive me, but I think they're people like we're people. And the elders made that decision and said, this is what we're going to do. This is our decision. And you know something? The Bible clearly gives the elders in the church the authority to do that. But there would have been some people in a, in a group that size, some very strong, opinionated Jews that were holding on to the Old Testament that would have not been willing to receive what James said. And they would have taken their families and whoever else shared their point of view and started the Apostolic Church Part 2 across town. But you know something? You don't read about the Apostolic Church Part 2 anywhere in this book. You don't read about a separate, the Acts of the Apostles Chapter 2 or Version 2 or, you know the epistle to whatever. You don't, why? Because their spirit was wrong. This is the apostolic experience, folks. Thank you, Lord. Bless the Lord. There were false prophets in the New Testament church. The Bible tells us about seven young men who were sons of a priest. Their daddy was a preacher. They had authority. Your dad's a preacher. We need to pray for you. Don't ever get carried away with that. But these seven young men decided that they were going to do some spiritual things. They wanted to be in ministry. So they got this demon-possessed person, and they said to him, we I'm just in modern English, they said, we speak to you by the same Jesus that Paul speaks about to come out of them. Because you know what they wanted? They wanted to be seen as something. The, the evil spirit that was in that possessed person said, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul, are. Paul is, but I don't think we've met before. And the Bible says that that demon-possessed man leapt on them and basically beat the brains out of them and they ran with half their clothes torn off because they got beat up so bad. This is the apostolic experience. Bless the Lord. Don't, please, don't all leave the church when I'm done this morning. There is a positive in all of this. But this is what they dealt with in the New Testament. So we sometimes get this shiny, squeaky view of what was going on in the first century. I think we'll never be like them. You know, there are some churches in the New Testament, I hope we're never like them. There are things I read about in 1 Corinthians, I think, dear Lord, don't ever let that happen in our church, please. 
We need to have a little bit of reality, folks. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. The last time he met with them, he knew that his life was drawing towards its end. He met with them the last time in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He said to the elders from Ephesus, he said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul said, this is going to happen. He said, when I'm gone, you need to know. There's some things going to happen in the church. Well, Paul didn't have a lot of faith. Now, Paul was speaking by the Holy Ghost. The Lord was using him to warn the elders at Ephesus. Read the New Testament. There are others who are named in its pages. Diotrephes in the third epistle of John. Hymenius and Alexander. Phygelus and Hermogenes, I'm probably not getting these names right. Demas, these men are all named. They're named as failures. They're named as men that opposed the church, that opposed the Apostle Paul. And one of the common things amongst them was that they wanted to draw disciples unto themselves. Let me say something to you. Please take this the right way. The church is set up and we are encouraged from the word of God that those that are elder it's talking about both natural being older and also spiritually being older should be an example and teach those that are younger that's Bible so if you've been around a while you have a responsibility to be a good example to those that have only come recently that's scripture so when somebody says to me well other people shouldn't be looking at me they need to read their Bibles we are to be an example and we should look to, there should be people in our lives that we look to that encourage us, that strengthen us, that, that, that talk to us from time to time. That's, that's how the body should operate. I, I can't talk to everybody about everything. I'm, I'm doing my best to, but that's just not physically possible. But we are to strengthen and encourage one another. But, let me say this, before you make a decision... To choose somebody as your example. To say, I'm going to follow their lead, so to speak. You need to look at their life. You need to look at the fruit of their life. But you also need, before you allow them to lead you, you need to look at how they follow. Because if they're not following, then you need to put some distance between you and that person. Because God has set it up that the church works together. And if there are people... Look, Paul said that these things would happen. But if there are people like Diotrephes and some of these others who've got their own agenda, don't become their disciple. Paul did say, follow me. But there wasn't a full stop there. There was a condition. He said, as I follow Christ. He didn't say, I'm building the church of Paul. Come be my disciples. He said... He knew that God had given him the responsibility to teach, to lead, and to train. And he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And we would do well to remember that many of the things they dealt with in the apostolic church still happen today. Bless the Lord. I'm nearly done. Don't be surprised when things aren't perfect in the church. Don't be surprised when things don't always, people don't always do what they should. It happened in the first century. It'll happen in the last century, and it's happened in every century in between. 
It's called people. It's a real problem that all churches have. It's called people. And I'm a people. And just in case you thought I was talking about you and not me, we're all people. And we're all problems. That's why we're here. We don't sign at the door saying, well, I'm perfect so I can attend. We come in saying, I'm broken, I want to be mended. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. But in the midst of all of these things, the trouble within and without sometimes, in the New Testament there was still a church that was alive, that was powerful, that still believed that Jesus was the answer, that still believed that the gospel was relevant and still the only way to be saved. Amen. So if you come here expecting everything to be perfect and trouble-free, you're in the wrong place. The Bible talks about, you know, where there's no oxen, book of Proverbs, I think it is, where there's no oxen, the stall is clean. Would well, you want to have a perfectly clean barn? Don't put any animals in that thing. But if you haven't got oxen, you've got no labor. Because in Bible times, an oxen was the equivalent of an expensive tractor. And they needed that. If they were going to be fruitful, if they were going to be productive and labor and bring forth the, the fruit of the earth, they had to have an oxen. Oxen are not clean animals. Somebody's got to keep cleaning the stall. And it depends on when you happen to walk in as to what state the stall is in. You know, we, sometimes when we have visiting ministry come stay with us, particularly if they're from overseas, we take them down to Whiteman Park. There's a little show they do down there where they, they talk about the Australian sheep industry and they bring out, some of you have been there, they bring out a sheep and they shear the sheep and tell you all about it. And then there's this, they always bring in a big old cow so you can have an opportunity to milk the cow. Well, when we were there with the visiting minister and his wife, not this year but a couple of years ago, this minister provoked his wife and said, go and milk the cow, go on, go milk the cow. So she walks over to milk the cow. Now, there is no flashing light that comes on when a cow needs to go to the bathroom. But just as she got close to the cow, you see, some things just happen. It's life. The church is a living thing. It's messy. People make mess. People make mistakes. We have problems. We have issues. We have trouble. But that's why we're here. So if you come here looking for everything trouble-free and perfect, you're in the wrong place. But if you've come here looking to find Jesus and to find hope and to find salvation for your soul, we still have that in stock. We still believe that that's the answer. We still believe that people are still born again in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost, that illnesses are still healed, that families are still put back together, that brokenness can be made whole. That's an apostolic experience. But we're all in this thing getting fixed up together. So when we have a hard time with somebody else, just remember you're broken as well. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Sister Eileen, if I could have you to the piano, please. I'm going to sing I Feel Jesus in a moment. Who's been serving the Lord for more than five years? Raise your hand. All right. Keep your hand up if it's more than 10. Keep your hand up if it's more than 15. If you need to borrow someone's fingers and toes, just ask them to help you. Keep your hand up if it's more than 20. More than 30. All right, the hands are... Uh, 19, 7. 
More than 40 years. All right, we've got hands starting to fade. Brother Paul, and you're probably going to be one of the last ones up. Some of you have been in this thing a long, long time. Some of us, it's more recent. But here's my question this morning. This is what I want to finish with. I want to challenge you with this. When you think about the beginnings of your apostolic experience, first born again, first time you repented of your sins, first time when, when you were baptized in Jesus' name and your sins were washed away and filled with the Holy Ghost and you just felt that power and that love and it was hard. You know, when people say to you, what's it like to receive the Holy Ghost? It's, it's, it's really difficult to actually describe that because it's, it's, there's, there's peace, there's love, there's joy, there's, there's, all, there's, there's, there's power. It's, it's hard. And then when people get the Holy Ghost, they say, now I know what you were trying to explain. I want you to think about that first experience when it first began and how you felt. Brother Chi-Chi, do you remember the night or the day you got the Holy Ghost? It was a great experience, wasn't it? If we had said to you that day, look, we're going to have church tomorrow night as well, would you have come? And then then we said we're going to have it the next night, would you have come as well? Why? Because when we first taste, the psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm given living water. When we first have that experience, there is something about it that transforms us that we just, we, we can't get enough of it. Something so life-changing about that. My question to you this morning is this. When you think about the beginnings of your walk with God, now life changes. We mature and God expects us to mature and grow. But when you think about your original apostolic experience, and original is a good word to use with apostolic, and you think about where it is right now, how do they compare? How do they compare? Are there things that you remember and that's all they are, is memories? Is there the love for God, the love for His Word, the love for His people, the love for the lost, all of those things that just seem to overwhelm us? Are they in the present as well? Is your apostolic experience right now, July 5th, 2015, Is it something that's grown from then or has it shrunk or shriveled from then? Let's be honest with ourselves. If we're an apostolic church, ah, not were, if we are an apostolic church, how does that experience compare with where I'm at today? Here's the thing. He has not changed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word has not changed. It's forever settled in heaven. It doesn't get adjusted. There's not a new version released every year to allow for cultural niceties. It stays the same. So if everything about the Lord is consistent, in fact, the reality is when you read the Scripture, He desires that as we walk with Him that He would reveal more to us, not less. So if everything about Him is consistent and should be growing, And when we compare those two, if we're a bit concerned about the present, what's changed? Has God changed? We have. Could be a lot of reasons. We get busy, get discouraged, made a decision maybe somewhere along the way that's made it harder. 
something's happened to us that's got us upset and we've allowed that to push us off the tracks and we're still, we're not, certainly not suggesting that we're lost, but we certainly don't have that passion that we used to have. You know, it's not easy to maintain that. Life has a way of wearing us out. But the Bible talks about, in the Old Testament, prophesying about the Spirit of God, about the times of refreshing that would come. How God would come in and in our weariness lift us up. Lift up the hands that hang down, the Bible says. Strengthen the feeble knees. I don't want to just talk about our memories, church. I want to be able to say we are an apostolic church. I want to be able to say my experience. We're talking about apostolic experience today. My apostolic experience today. Maybe not right at this moment. Maybe you're going through a difficult season. That's a part of your walk with God. I'm not talking about necessarily right at this moment. But in the present environment of your walk with God, if it's not stronger, deeper, and richer than it was, then I would encourage you to consider doing something about that. Let's stand together this morning. He has not changed. He doesn't change. People change. If you feel a long way from God, He didn't move. He's right where He always was. Consistent, faithful, the rock of our salvation. Bless, you know, everything you read in the, we talked about prophecy a little bit earlier. Everything you read in the New Testament that talks about things to come, talks about the return of the Lord, it often comes with an encouragement or an exhortation to reach further, to love more, to dig deeper, to hang on harder. Hebrews talks to us about not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves. And not, don't, don't think that gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ is no longer important. He said, as the manner of some is. The writer of Hebrews said, there will be people that think it doesn't matter anymore. He said, don't be those people. He said, but the more so as you see the day approaching. So if you think we're living in the last days, and you think that Jesus is coming back, and I hope you do this morning, then our experience should be growing in intensity, not fading. It should be stirring. And I know, you see, that is not natural. Natural is complacency. The natural man becomes complacent. He becomes familiar. He becomes accustomed to the things of God. But the Spirit of God that stirs in us. Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. Now, he was talking about his ministry, but the principle applies to us. If you have the Holy Ghost, if He has placed the earnest of your inheritance within your soul, it is that res- resurrection power. It is waiting for that moment when He activates it and boom! We're out of here. I want to be a part of a church that is still apostolic. You feel that this morning? These altars are open as we worship the Lord.